0: Hello friends and welcome to the show. On today's episode we sat down with Emily Pickrell. She is a master sommelier, very talented. We got to blind taste with her. We talked about some of the wines that she's bringing into the store that we're going to have on pre-order. We talked about what it's like being a master sommelier in this weird 2020 and we had a great time and a great conversation. We really hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. How are you? Hey, cheers, Anthony. I uh I gotta say I'm really excited for this uh episode. This is something that we've been talking about doing for a while and uh and we're gonna jump into it. Emily, how are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited about this. Very I feel very lucky to
1: have one of the twenty five women MSs, Master Psalms, in the United States or in the world really, really Is right? that
0: right? Twenty five, how many are there? How-
2: I, I think there's about 23 in the United States and 30 in the world.
1: And 30 in the world.
0: And how many total uh, masters are there?
2: Around 250. Wow. And then 160 of those or so roughly are in the United States.
0: And one of them being your husband. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> how is that? That's
2: You know, people always think that we sit at home and uh, talk about wine. We don't. We drink a lot of wine at home, but we don't really uh, wax poetic. We, we talk about our kids and our lives and work and...
0: Like We're normal, normal people, people yeah. right. exactly. Of course. <laughs> but going through, I mean, uh, when did you meet your husband?
2: We met uh, shortly right around the same time I passed the exam in 2013.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's, I would assume uh, he, was he already a master at that point in time? Yeah,
2: he was. He passed in 2007.
0: Okay. Oh, very cool. So, I, w- I would imagine as you're studying, the, the time up to your exam, you are just, I mean, well, I guess you're the master why don't you tell us a little bit about what yeah, goes like, into how becoming did you get started
1: like that whole idea like what made you focus on wanting to do this
2: yeah um so i was working in restaurants in new york city in my early 20s and had a love and passion for wine and i uh just believe in wine education just for personal fulfillment and wanting to learn more about the subject so i um did the whole wset diploma course and finished that and was like, well, what's next? So I decided to take my CMS intro course and fell in love with the program. Um, so it was always just a personal goal to see if I could do it more than having any type of external motivation other than that.
0: I uh, I haven't gone through the uh, WSETs. It's something that I've I've considered doing in the past. But when I've I've started, I started my whole journey through the court. So, G- going back to the WSETs, it's something that uh, eventually I probably want to do, but I've uh, I, right now I'm kind of in love with what I'm learning through the court, and that's I, I feel like that's something that interests me. Um, but what do, what's your takeaway? The difference between the WSETs and the court? So
2: the WSET is was fascinating. I learned a ton, and it has a lot more to do with the global wine business. So you uh, get to learn about say the Australian export market and where those wines are going. So you have more of a global perspective on what's going on in the business of wine. And there's also a lot more writing involved with the WSET diploma. You have to write papers and um, do that, a lot of external research. The court class is more geared towards the restaurant industry. And so the types of questions that you might encounter, the things that you have to learn, really have to do with what you would find on a wine list. You know, specific producers, what a particular vintage may have been like um that kind of thing
0: that's kind of always been my understanding if i'm going to be working the floor then the court's kind of the way to go and if you're going to be working more journaling or critiquing or or like a critic the w sets are very interesting for that definitely um and then i think they kind of go into like a little more uh uh, spirits And uh, I guess on that side, if that makes sense, uh, the spirits world through the W sets. Is that correct? They
2: they cover uh, spirits are covered in both curriculums. But I think there's a whole separate like section more... devoted to spirits with the W set, whereas the court is just part of the overall curriculum with right. the main focus on wine.
1: Right. And then so you are now working for. Noble Wine or Jackson Family Wine Estates, What what is what is the actual title? Yeah,
2: so I work for Jackson Family Wines, and they're probably best known for their flagship winery, which is Kendall Jackson. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that they own 45 different wineries around the globe, and I represent the Spire Collection, which is considered their more uh, luxury wine division, and basically um, the sales of wineries like Kendall, Jackson, and La Crema help funnel dollars towards... The projects that I represent, which are very small production, far more niche offerings, really focused on some of their most preeminent single vineyard assets around the globe.
1: Yeah, small, smaller production wines very too. Very small production. And definitely, definitely not your Tuesday night wine. These are some big I, hitters, right? I mean, I yeah.
2: guess it depends on your pocketbook. <laughs> 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 I would love for these to be my Tuesday night wines, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I would say they're they tend to be more special occasion, kind of birthday anniversary type. Bottle links, or, or they make for great gifts too. And and
1: you were going to talk about a couple of them today, right?
2: Yeah, we uh, we highlight. We're going to highlight the Lahota Cabernet Franc from Howell Mountain, and then a Cabernet Sauvignon out of Knights Valley from the Anacota Vineyard.
1: And then, uh, what uh, what makes these wines so special? to be in your portfolio, this this specific portfolio.
2: Yeah. So most of the wines in my portfolio are representations of single vineyard designated areas. So very specific kind of slices of the world that give you an impression of just what that particular plot of land had to offer in any given year. Um, and so, like I say, very small production wines. These are coming from very singular places around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, Mount Brave. So uh, we're talking about the cab today, the Mount Brave cab. Or the Anacota, or the Anacota, Anacota Cab, cab. Mm-hmm.
2: And then the La Cabernet
1: Franc. And that uh, that is... Um, Knights Valley. Yeah. So what kind of notes are we going to pick up from Knights Valley? Is there, is there something we should look for? Not, you know, just the average Joe that might listen to our podcast. Is there something they should look for in that style?
2: Sure. Well, the reason I, I thought it, I, it's always fun to talk about Knights Valley and highlight it is because it's the natural extension of the Napa Valley. So if you're out in Napa and you're driving north on Highway 29, you're kind of between the Vaca Mountain Range and the Mayacamas Mountain Range. And that all ends at this point at the north end of the Napa Valley which is Mount St. Helena. Well if you keep driving straight you kind of skirt along the western edge of Mount St. Helena and you naturally end up in Knights Valley. So um, it it has a lot of the same climatic influences and terroir that you would find in the Napa Valley but because you're crossing the Sonoma border and it's not Napa there tends to be a lot of value in Knights Valley Um, and I, I think being a part of the wine world seeing the ever-increasing prices of wines out of Napa, I think that Knights Valley is a really great place to look for extremely high-quality Cabernet Sauvignon in particular, mm-hmm. but at prices that sometimes fall below their Napa counterpoints.
0: That's something that I've always found uh, Knights Valley to be perfect for, especially when I'm kind of creating a wine list. Sometimes you can't... You, you have some of those heavier hitters, right? But the average everyday person that's coming in isn't spending through the roof Uh, or or, you know I what I would tell my staff was you know sometimes people save up for a month to come here right and they want to be treated with the same level as the person who's going to come in and spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine right but they don't have that price point so you can find things there are certain areas of the world and Knights Valley's always been one of those for me where you can get great quality wine Awesome Cabernet Sauvignon, and you're not paying some of those high dollar price points. I think it's a, a beautiful region for that.
1: Yeah, and uh, again, too, just being in your business. I mean, you know, I know, we talked a little bit about like you know you're one of the uh, you know you know, small amount of women that are being able, to, has it been hard for you to be in this? Like, did you have any pushback from restaurant tours, retailers, anything like that?
2: I think the hardest thing, and this could be true for I've, I think women and now men, I'm not isolating, mm-hmm. singling women out, but I think because our industry has a lot of weekend hours and evening type commitments, especially if you're working on the floor in a restaurant um, and alternative work schedules, I think it's harder for women who want to have um, children and raise a family just because you are working very untraditional hours. And I've had times where, you know, I've been traveling for work in sales and I've had to catch a 6 a.m. flight and I've had a babysitter come over at 5 a.m. And that's not necessarily an easy, traditional time to find somebody to come watch your kid for a couple hours. So there have definitely been some challenges along the way, but most of them have less to do with the fact that I'm female, more to do with the fact that I'm, parenting at the same time
1: and I think that's I mean even me I'm a I'm a grandfather right and you know my grandson's coming over this weekend I wanted him to come over tonight but I'm working till 10 o'clock so it didn't work so he's coming tomorrow and you know I think that just is a family thing right I mean in our business you know even in retail weekend you know we all work weekends so um, that's just something that's kind of normal in our life as family but I get it for women you know because you know There's nursing and, you know, the beginning of a child's life. It's really nurturing is really important.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot has changed in our industry. I've been in this industry for almost 18 years. And when I was 22 years old working the floor of a high-end restaurant in New York City, there were not a lot of women in my field working the floor as a sommelier in a restaurant. And so it was natural to get pushback. And I think that also is part of what inspired me to go down the journey of wine education, just to help support the knowledge that I was gaining by working in the floor in a restaurant and to complement what I was learning from hands on experience with book knowledge to back it up. But now I fast forward to 17 years and there's it's a very dynamic business. There's a ton more women in the industry and I even see when I teach classes at the introductory level we'll have 80 people in the class and 50% of them are women. So we've come a long way in a short amount of time.
0: And there's several uh, female masters in in Florida. I mean, Virginia is down in. Uh, she's at Breakers, right? Yeah, is that right? Virginia Phillips runs the
2: yeah. program at the Breakers. And she's
0: and- a sweetheart too. Uh, I've I've had a chance to uh, work with uh, several masters, and, and I mean, <laughs> I, if I didn't know that there were a few ma- female masters, I, w- I would never know because I've been blessed to be in Central Florida where I've I've been around. A few of them you know it's it's kind of been a a normal thing but to kind of touch on what you were speaking about I think it's I think it's important to note. I don't know and it being a male in the industry it's it's very hard for me to speak uh, out of term for females but I think it's hard for everyone as a whole uh, if you're trying to be a family person and work the restaurant hours, because restaurant hours are crazy. I mean, retail hours are difficult, but sometimes in a restaurant you're not getting out until one, two in the morning, and then you have to go home. and My daughter wakes up at six. Yeah, you know, so there are
2: many sleepless nights there. when my son You have a early.
0: babysitter
1: tonight too, because you're working of and course. your wife is working at a restaurant tonight. So you yeah, know, absolutely. It definitely, uh, I think that affects us all in this business. Is is uh, you know the the well, family
0: especially as I, uh, you know, I have, uh, I went to school to be an accountant and, uh, you know, I kind of took a left turn and, and went into the wine industry. It was something that, uh, grabbed me a lot more than <laughs> crunching numbers. Uh, so most of my f- close friends and family are business professionals. They're working in the uh, business world. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard to kind of, uh, to see it from an outsider's perspective but the wine industry is a profession and and a lot of money can be made as a wine professional and you're just a wine professional that gets out late and works these crazy hours and you don't work during the you know Monday Tuesday you get to have those off sometimes you know it's kind of a weird little world where we get to experience and I think it's a beautiful thing I mean I'm sure what brought you into the industry is you're you're celebrating with uh wine and and spirits and food and it's a beautiful thing that just makes everyone happy. It's a a field like no other but the hours are (laughs) they're insane for you know a a younger parent.
1: I think the nice part about our business is we get to you know I get to travel to places wineries and beautiful locations and you know um, know, I've been to your wineries I've been to your wineries in in Italy you know um, and you know it's I think that makes that makes up for a lot of the, the tough stuff is that we get to enjoy and see those places but i mean i I guess too with your job too and like the whole COVID thing that's happened um i'm sure you do wine dinners right and events and i'm sure that's kind of cut into your
2: i was gonna say i haven't in the last uh eight months it used to be a normal part of my job and i used to get on a plane if not every week every other week and fly somewhere and go work that market and i haven't done that either so it's definitely been a A unique and strange time for our business, especially for restaurant sommeliers and people working in the restaurant industry. Most of all, I think
0: things seem to be, at least in certain parts of the United States. We have listeners all over, so uh, at least for our experience here in Florida, things seem to be kind of opening back up. Kind of right. We just went to (laughs) we went to a restaurant the other night. Yeah. And. 50% 50% of their wine list, I mean, cut in half. Cut in half. You, any, mm-hmm. any bottle we were looking for just wasn't there. It was a great time, though, wasn't it? A great time. Yeah. Absolutely. But the point is, as a psalm, and I know the psalm there, and she's a sweetheart. She's very good at what she does. And I can only imagine having to hear a guest, you know, can I get this? No, I mean, yeah. we, don't, we don't have it right now. So that's a difficult thing, right? I, did I order mean,
1: four bottles of wine, and then none of them were on. The none list. of them were there, right? And <laughs> so true. that's
0: a that's a terrible thing. It just as a server, but imagine being the person who's running that wine list, right? Yeah. I Have to say, no, it's not there. <laughs> How about this? You know, but it, I think
1: you know we're okay with it because we, you know, it's plenty of times people call me and go, "Hey, do you have this?" No, we just sold out. Or so I don't, you know, I I love going to restaurants, and of course. I've worked in a restaurant, so I cherish servers. I know how hard their jobs are. Um, but back to you, I poured you guys a wine blind. Yes. And, you know, I've... And I did this to you the first time I met you. I threw a... What did I
0: throw at
2: you? Uh, Sangiovese from New Jersey. From New Jersey.
1: Oh, he
0: hit you with that one, huh? <laughs> I hit Tyler with the same <laughs> one, yeah, too. You got both of us. On one of our podcasts, we we did it. And Tyler and I, uh, over at Olivia, we're, we're sitting here and we're running it down. And I... I you said American. He said Italian. Then I you, But I you said, both said San. Gio- I think you both said Sangiovese. Yeah, San Giovese, we both called Sangiovese. And, and so did she. Yeah, and I said, but this is... This is... I don't know what it is. It's it seems like it's <laughs> New World. I don't know and, what this and is. My
1: dad swore my dad and I swore up and down when we got blind tasted it it was Sangiovese but we Italy. I mean, you know, like Sangiovese, it's Italy. It's got to be Italy. New Jersey.
2: I didn't even know they grew grapes in New Jersey. (laughs) There you go.
0: So what I want to do here is uh, I want to, uh, of course, we're going to go through the blind tasting, but uh, because I've I've gone through uh, certain aspects of the court, I'd like for you to kind of run down how you would do a, a true blind tasting. Sure.
2: So the first thing you look at is the color of the wine. And for red wines... Um, they oxidize as they age and turn more of an orange hue. And I can see here that this is an intense uh, color. It's, you know, there's opaqueness to it. And so I think it's probably made from a thick skinned or highly pigmented grape variety. But I can also see that there's a little bit of a garnet um, kind of oranging hue to the wine, which to me indicates that the wine is um, aging a little bit. And there's also maybe a little bit of sediment in the glass as well. So again, pointing to that, this wine, if I had to guess, would have some age on it. The next thing that I look at other than like the concentration of color and the the gradation of color is um, the viscosity on the side of the glass. So when people talk about legs in a wine, um, really what that means is that water and alcohol have different evaporation rates and so um, what you're left with in terms of the legs or the tearing on the side of the glass has it usually to do more with alcohol content and has nothing to do with the quality of the wine Um, but based on just kind of like the thick um, viscous looking nature of the tears and how they just like slowly slide down the side of the glass I would say that this is a wine with maybe an elevated alcohol content And part of the process of deductive tasting is just to kind of piece together clues. But then, um, so that's just what I pick up on the site, then we'll get a chance to smell it and taste it. And you're kind of putting the pieces of a puzzle together. So when I say it has thick tears like that, and that it probably has elevated alcohol, what my mind is thinking is, where are climates in the world that grow grapes with a lot of sunshine and possible heat that gets grapes riper that would have a resulting higher alcohol content in the glass. That said, I haven't smelled or tasted it, so I'm not sure if that's the case or not. So then I go on to the next uh, section, which is smelling the wine. And really what I'm looking for here is um, the, the type of fruits and the ripeness level of them. So I'm gonna give the wine a quick smell. and I get a lot of um, cherry and plum and berry on this wine, and it's a combination of red and black fruits, but it's the condition of the fruit that really speaks to me. And what I mean by condition is the level of ripeness that it seems to have. And in this case, I don't get a lot of tartness. I'm not getting things like cranberry or underripe cherry. I'm getting more um, kind of liqueur-like or cooked nature to the fruit. It smells yummy and, and richer and riper. So again, that points to that. I, I If I had to guess now, I think that this is a wine that probably um, comes from a slightly warmer climate. So aside from fruit, some other things that you would look for on the nose are the oak impressions. So oak, to me, lends all the yumminess in the wine. It's where you get things like cinnamon, vanilla, mocha, chocolate. And I think about like anything that you would bake a pie with at home is uh, associated with an oak aroma. So... When I smell this, I definitely pick up on the Vanillin. There's definite cinnamon stick here. Um, the oak is well integrated with the fruit, but it, um, there, I think there's definitely a sense of new oak on this wine because I am getting that Vanillin and the cinnamon stick and, and those mocha aromas. And then you look for secondary characteristics, and this is kind of a vast category that might include things like florals or tobacco leaf, lead, pencil shavings, um, minerality, things like wet river rock or soil, things like that, mushrooms, saddle leather. It's, it's a catch-all, all-encompassing category, but sometimes, uh, depending on what the grape variety is and where it's made, it might exhibit a lot of those um, factors on the nose. So when I smell this particular wine, What jumps out at me right away is, is definitely the fruit and then that oak spice. There is maybe just a like a hint of um, subtle kind of forest floor and leather in the background. But to me, that has more to do with the, the fact that I think the wine is in a stage of development. It's an older wine. And so you're getting some more of those secondary um, secondary aromas coming through.
0: So as you're nosing, are you taking one big pull or are you taking multiple little quick shots?
2: When I, when I smell the wine, I um, you know take a couple little sniffs and then set the glass aside, because if you leave your nose in the glass, all you're gonna end up smelling after a while is just alcohol vapor. And I always say, when you're blind tasting, it's go with your gut instincts. So your brain and your olfactories are working incredibly fast. And so if you set the glass aside and just go with your original kind of like gut instinct, usually that will tell you a lot more about the wine than if you sit there with your nose in the glass for 15 minutes. Cause in truth fermentation is an incredibly complex science and as a result of fermentation you take um you you get like thousands of different ester compounds and aroma compounds and depending on any person's um own sense of smell you can pick up different things so with blind tasting it's not can you isolate and identify every single aroma in the wine but it's like what are the key driver driving factors in that wine
0: i was having a really hard time uh uh with my blind tasting for for quite for quite a while actually in the beginning and uh it came down to my nose Uh, that was one of the biggest things and uh george actually sat me down and he uh he was worked with me on my blind tasting as a whole but uh he found that uh the nosing was kind of george miliotis he he kind of uh had me you know i was taking big long uh smells through the glass and he was like stop think about a dog does a dog take a bunch of really or do quick sniffs right or does it is it one long no it's a lot of short little blasts and once i started doing that and put the glass down come back to it and you know i i could kind of you know work through different uh, characteristics so i was interested in i that.
1: i found that when i'm doing it like there's some days where i think oh my god i am so good at this and then there's some days where i'm like I am so terrible at this. I should probably quit my job.
2: Well, in a normal day, I'm not blind tasting wines. Right. And oftentimes, even in my job, I'm not assessing them for their varietal accuracy. I'm assessing them for, do I like this? Does this represent good bang for the buck? You know, do I think this over delivers?
1: Yeah, same thing we do.
2: Is this yummy to me? And those are the questions that I normally ask myself when I'm tasting a wine, not, you know, how much leather or mocha is in this. (laughs) at any given point in time. So I think um, especially for consumers who aren't wine professionals, and the point of blind tasting really only comes down to, do you like the taste of it? Do you wanna keep drinking it? That's the only thing that matters. Yeah, for
1: sure. I have a blind tasting group and it's about who brought the best wine. Now we do pick region and location, um, varietal, sometimes vintage, but it's about who brought the best one. like which one showed the best. And uh,
0: you always feel proud
1: when you walk away and and you won. (laughs) The
0: the only time I've ever used blind tasting for anything, actually, uh, other than, you know, us being industry professionals and handing the other one a glass and walking away. (laughs) Tell me what it is. But the only thing I've actually used it for is uh, when someone tells me they don't like something and I bring that thing to them and just, you know, what do you think? My favorite thing in the world to hear working the floor is I don't like Chardonnay. I I love hearing that at a table. Mine and, is I don't like Merlot. <laughs> that's a that's a big one. Yeah. I love poor people Well, people, it, because you come into it with this you know idea of I don't like that. Well, are you sure? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you sure? Let your palate. All right. It I'll bring you what you want, but also here's a sample of this. Tell me what you think. And yeah. and you know just not going into it with the idea of oh this is Chardonnay. You know. Oh, okay. So what I don't like is Rombauer. That's what I'm not into. You know what I mean? That's, there's, there's different, that's the most versatile, not the most versatile, but it's such a versatile grape that you have it on both ends of the spectrum. And and sometimes people think that they don't like Chardonnay when it's California.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Rombauer, you sell a lot of it, so you can't knock it, you know, you can't knock Kendall Jackson because how many bottles of Kendall Jackson sells a year? You know, I mean... I want to put a wine in people's hands that they love. And I want them to love it so much. They are go, oh my God, those guys, they sold me the best wine. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm going to go back to them. You know, so you guys are in that same business. Tiffany Marani's in the room. Shout out to Tiffany Marani. Um, and, you know, that's that's the thing, right? We're all trying to give our customers the wine that's right for them. You know, this wine I like. I like this wine. I did not know what this wine was going to taste like when I opened it. I was just like, all right, let's
0: check it out. So let's keep moving through the tasting. All right. (laughs) I I, I, want to know what it is. So
2: so next up on the palate, the first thing you do on the palate uh, that I do is like kind of the checks uh, and balances of what you got on the nose. So I said on the nose there was plum and cherry and raspberry, and it was a mix of both red and black fruits. On the palate, I find that this is way more black fruit driven, there's a sweetness to the fruit, there's a ripeness to the fruit, and it's way plummier on the palate. The other thing I would say is, yes, I get oak on this. There's the cinnamon stick, there's the vanilla, there's um, just the overall impression of that oak barrel spice that I'm getting on the palate. One of the things I just got, and I just had three sips of the wine on my third sip, I was like, oh my gosh, Green tobacco leaf. I'm picking up green tobacco leaf on this wine, which instantly puts me in more of a Bordeaux grape variety camp. So, I said before, this is a thick skin grape variety because it's highly pigmented. Um, but now I'm kind of narrowing down my field to Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, or more Merle- or Merlot, or a blend of of those grapes, um, just based on that tobacco leaf. And then again, um, on the palate, I do get the finish. um, There is that slight tinge of leather that I picked up on the nose to me, indicating that the wine is exhibiting some developmental characteristics with bottle age. Next part of the palette is what you don't do on the nose, which is talking about the structure. And this is, I think, the most challenging part of identifying a wine because you have to formulate a um, kind of benchmark for your own palette of what you consider um, to feel in terms of acid, tannin, alcohol, the weight of the wine, the overall texture of it. So I'm going to start with tannins. So tannins are the tactile sensation that give your mouth the impression that it's drying out. So if you think about oversteeping a glass of tea um, and leaving a tea bag and a cup of tea for too long and it's, it dries your mouth out, that's, that's tannin. So with this particular wine, the tannin impact, you know there's some structure here there's like there's a chewiness to the finish um so i would i would say this has elevated tannins and again i think that this is probably a thick skin grape variety so it plays in into that um in terms of acidity so acidity is how much your mouth is watering when you drink the wine while i think this has balanced acidity and it's a delicious product it's not overly acidic it's not Um, I don't think this is like from a cool climate, for example, where I'm getting all this like tart cranberry and pomegranate and my mouth is just full of saliva. I think there's a balanced acid here, but it's not the primary component of the wine. And then we got alcohol. And as I mentioned, I think the, the fruit tastes riper and sweeter. There's a liqueur like quality of the fruit on the nose and palate. And so all of that to me leads to... A warmer climate, elevated alcohol, and you can actually taste it in the back of your throat. There's a warmth here when you sip the wine, and that subtle burn that I, I like, um, it's comforting to me. But there's um, an elevated presence of alcohol here, so that would be how I assess the palate, and then I kind of put all the clues together. So to just bring it all home, i I have no idea if I'm right or wrong here i'm just gonna throw it out there but i'm talking about a thick skin grape variety so initially i would be thinking cabernet sauvignon merlot malbec Shiraz Um, and then i think that this is from a warmer climate and typically you see warmer climates in what we call new world countries so places like california argentina washington state we're not talking or australia we're not talking about burgundy or bordeaux because there's ripeness to the fruit here i think that it doesn't have the acid to be like an italian grape variety so for all of those reasons i'm thinking that this is probably an example of a california wine i do think it's because i get that tobacco leaf i do think it's probably a bordeaux style blend but based on a cabernet grape variety um and i think it's a really well-made wine there's uh, there's oak on the wine it's got great balance and texture and i do think it has some age on it so in terms of age i'd put this at 10 to 15 years so i'd be thinking this is like an 04 to 08 vintage of a cabernet based blend from california most likely from the napa valley
1: mm-hmm. okay what it is you, you want to take a shot at it
0: uh, I'll, I'll take a shot, but, uh, based on what she called, I'm way off. <laughs> I had, I, I had it down to three different grapes. I had it down to, uh, uh, Cremoniere. I had, uh, Melbeck possibly. And then I had Cab Franc. Uh, the reason I got Cab Franc, I got a little bit of that, uh, I got herbal on the back end, kind of a, a little bit of green pepper. Um, and that's hard for me to pull off of Cab Franc. Um, I don't, but it doesn't drive with it. So it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as prominent as, i would like for it to be to call it cab franc so i landed on uh i i thought it was possibly carbonier i thought five to seven years and i thought uh that that's kind of where I I, was.
1: I I think if i would have guessed and i knew what it was but i thought i thought i would probably have gone with cab but i did not I hadn't tasted this wine in years i haven't tasted it in years so when i saw it i was like this will be interesting. Let's check this one out.
2: It's definitely green. There's definitely that green tobacco green bell pepper.
1: And I think you guys had it when you started saying when you were talking about Cabernet Franc. The weird thing is, it's Andrew Will, Columbia yeah, Valley, Washington State. Cabernet Franc. Perfect. 13. Yeah. I got
0: the green, but yeah. it just didn't, it wasn't as much as I wanted. So yeah.
2: I thought it was, um, but, I thought it was older than that. That's interesting. If
1: you, said, if you would have said the alcohol, what would you say the alcohol was? On
2: this? Well, it's hard to tell on the label because they're not always accurate, but I right. would put this at at least 14%, but I would probably say 14.5.
1: And I would agree. I thought 14.5. It's But they have 13.5. And they, and they can fudge that number by how many a points? Point and a half. Point so and a half. So
2: it could be 14.5 and labeled <laughs> yeah. at 13. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But thirteen five keeps you lower, paying less taxes. Is that right?
2: I don't know the exact tax I, 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 structure, I, I think but
1: there's something I think about thirteen it, or thirteen right? five.
2: A lot of times, these labels have to be ordered before the wine, the final blend is made, mm-hmm. and so they kind of have to ballpark it. When yeah. they're placing their label order,
0: I'm so glad that I did not go and grab a bottle to blind because I was going with that little cab franc from Carcassonne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> I didn't know what to pick. I just ran by and I go, oh, "That looks good.
1: Let's grab delicious. that." And it's delicious. Thank you. And it's hot, right? It's like not like you know. Again, we have a little cabernet franc section. It's very small compared to you know the cab section or other sections in our store. So, um, but so. Just to let everybody know too, we're going to have a great deal on all the Spire wines in the next over the weekend, and these are going to be great prices. Uh, you can you you'll see them out there. You'll, they'll only be there for till Monday, right? They go away on Monday. Yeah. They'll, so they'll definitely. go away on Monday. So if you're listening to the podcast, this podcast will be out today. We will edit this and get it out today. You'll have two days to buy these wines at these great prices, um, and and of course they'll still be in the store. We'll, they'll be available to purchase. Uh, wines like Cardinal, uh, La Jota um, uh, Verille Lemuse yeah. uh, what else What's that Caladin? Caladin, yeah Cab so Franc? speaking
2: of Cap Franc we've got a couple Cap Francs on your offer sheet yeah um, both are from Napa and both are examples of, mountain high elevation Cabernet Franc. So Caledon is one of them. It's a blend of all four mountains, Vieter, Spring, Diamond, and Howell. It's a really powerful blockbuster example of Cab Franc. But we also have Lajota Cab Franc, which is really small production. Um, this comes off of the Lahota Estate Vineyard on Howell Mountain. It's a very historical vineyard site. It was planted um, in the mid-1800s. But in uh, 1978 they were, plant- they were replanting the vineyard and planted a particular block to Cabernet Franc and they decided to use St. George rootstock despite the fact that at the time everybody was told to plant on AXR1 rootstock. So fast forward we know that AXR1 rootstock is not phylloxera resistant. All of those vineyards that were planted on AXR1 in turn had to be ripped out and replanted. Well this particular vineyard block has never gotten phylloxera because it was planted on St. George and they think it's some of the oldest Cabernet Franc vines in the whole of the Napa Valley. So 40 plus years old, um, extremely low yielding. It yields about one ton, one and a half tons per acre, which is minuscule. But when you get yields that low from these old vines, you just get immense um, concentration of flavor and incredible complexity of flavor. Um, And this is a really small production wine. We have the 2017 vintage that we just released. It hits the market every October and we typically only have it in stock for two to three months before we sell out, and then don't have to wait again uh, till next fall to get the fresh vintage. So I just wanted to highlight that one in particular because it's perfect time of year um, to purchase that wine. I think it's a perfect example of a Cabernet Franc from the Napa Valley and from Howell Mountain specifically.
1: And when you and Tiffany tasted both my dad and I on them and Anthony on them, I was totally blown away by both those
0: Camp Francs. They
1: were just like, oh, wow. So... Again, they'll get good pricing this weekend on those. So um. I'm such a sucker for cab franc. That's I know. one of
0: those. That's one of those things for me that uh, I, I like that you reached into. This is kind of the season for it. I'm uh, live or buy die. Buy it. I uh, unfortunately I'm a very seasonal drinker. So during the summer I don't drink bigger wines. I tend to drink a lot of white and I drink a lot of Beaujolais. That's kind of where I go during the summer. But when it in Florida, if you can even call it a cooler time, I start to get into some of those. Uh, I lean into Cap Franc. That's something that, like I said, I, I with the green pepper, I kind of just lean into it, and that's I can't get away from it. Once I taste it, I, I'm I'm screwed in a blind tasting. Cause I can't break away from it. The pepper's there.
1: Yeah, it was. Great to have you in. Thank you for coming. Oh, no, my pleasure. I know, I know you're busy. Me. You know, the, the, you guys have a lot to do, and, and it's still in the trade, even though we're all kind of working from home and doing things like that. We'd love to have you in for maybe a Zoom tasting or something. That'd like That'd that be fun. I'd love to. Do that.
0: Before um, we break away, though, I do want to have you. Can you define sommelier for me? That's a that's a tough question, but I think it's a it's an important question. I sure.
2: Think. I think in a more traditional. Aspect as sommelier is a term given to anybody who works in a restaurant who has a hand in selling the wine and beverages associated with that restaurant. So um, you can be a waiter and still call yourself a sommelier if you're out there selling wine. Um, Yeah.
0: I I like that. That's something that I've I agree with hundred percent. He's always said that to me. He goes, "Well, Perry, you're a som because you've
1: been selling wine for." And I go, "Well, no, I didn't go to I didn't take the classes." I he didn't always do says that, and but, I say,
0: "But you're you're taking care of the wine. It is your job to explain what the wine in the store is. You know what this is better than anyone else. You are a sommelier." Well, my
1: dad is a really good sommelier, <laughs> and <laughs> Tiffany
0: <laughs> Tiffany will say,
1: "Of course, you know she loves to taste my dad blind, and he's pretty, he's good, man. He is good. He is good." But
2: uh, thanks for opening up this bottle, by the way. This is delicious. Yeah, yeah, sure. So fun.
1: Yeah, I broke. Well, I would not be a good restaurateur because, look, I broke the cork. Broke off, <laughs> that right. means you just have to drink the rest of the bottle. I, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I might have to put a, a little uh, plug in there and let you take it home. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 this
0: was very exciting. Yeah, thank you so thanks much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. All cheers. right, cheers. 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 And there you have it, another really fun episode. Thank you to Emily for coming on and hanging out with us. We always enjoy doing podcasts like this where we can kind of embarrass ourselves and do blind tastings and work through, especially with a master sommelier. We really hope you enjoyed the content. We'll see you next week. Cheers.